Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC. Redesign your organization. Reinvent your capabilities. Reimagine your future. On News Talk. There is an awful lot to get through between now and then, including a review of the Sunday papers. Um, the Irishman... No, I won't do the mail on Sunday because actually the author of that story is here with us. So I'll leave that to last and use that as a kicking off point. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times is where I'll start this morning. Gilligan, I'll never live in Ireland again. Uh, John Gilligan, the convicted crime lord, has revealed that he is set to flee Spain after a court trial last week, but admitted he will not return to Ireland amid the backlash to a controversial television docuseries about his life. Uh, John Gilligan, who Gardaí believe ordered the murder of journalist Veronica Guerin, said in an exclusive interview with the Sunday Times, I won't stay in Spain for the simple fact that I've got a suspended sentence hanging over me. If I was blamed for any crime or a row or scrap, I would get time in prison. Uh, Gilligan, 71, left a Spanish court last Monday with a suspended sentence of 22 months after confessing to drugs and weapon charges. Less than 24 hours later, he was back in court to support his partner, Sharon Oliver, who insisted that she knew nothing about the drug smuggling operation for which he avoided prison last week. Uh, asked whether he might relocate to Ireland after almost nine years living in the Mediterranean, he replied, I'm not going back to Ireland or the UK. If you ask me, he says, Ireland has gone to hell. I won't, which is it's quite something coming from someone like John Gilligan. I Ireland's why. gone to hell. Uh, I won't go to the Middle East because I couldn't afford it. Uh, I might buy a tent and move there, but I'll be gone soon. I'm almost 72 years old. What would I have left but uh, before I go to hell? Uh, the second episode of the three-part series, uh, Confessions of a Crime Boss, airs tomorrow night on Virgin Media, despite pleas from John- Veronica Gearan's brother, Jimmy Gearan, who says that the station has given a hardened criminal a platform to attack his sister's memory and legacy. Probably don't need to add the disclosure at this point, but obviously I work for Virgin Media Television and uh, questions about... All those things are for other people in the organisation. Uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, Joe McCarthy running in to score one of Ireland's 12 tries against uh, Romania yesterday. A uh, similar sight of Jebson Gibson Park at the top of the business post. Above a headline about the budget, uh, it, it's nearly there, lads. Uh, not, not so many kites left to be flown at this stage. Uh, but we, we are told today by the business post that the government is planning to deliver the most significant cut to the controversial USC since its introduction and to increase the entry point to the higher rate of tax as part of an expected 11 billion euro budget package next month. Uh, Cutting the USC has emerged as the preferred tax option within the coalition as Michael McGrath prepares to deliver Fianna Fáil's first budget in 13 years in the finance portfolio. Uh, Michal Martin this week confirmed that cuts to the USC are under consideration and six ministers from across the coalition speaking to the Business Post have backed the proposal with just five weeks to go until the budget on October the 10th. Fianna Fáil ministers are increasingly keen on USC cuts because they believe that the measures will benefit more lower-income workers uh, than the proposal from Fine Gael, uh, junior ministers, to give a mid- uh, middle-income workers a €1,000 tax cut. Um, also in the Business Post, the growing exodus of companies from the Irish Stock Exchange could force Goodbody to join Davy uh, in slashing roles within their organisation. 
Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent, two interesting stories there. Uh, the first of them is a preview of an interview inside the paper uh, with Sean Quinn uh, by the journalist Maeve Sheehan. Uh, you might remember Maeve Sheehan went to um, Ballyconnell and did a sit down with uh, Sean Quinn a couple of years ago. Uh, she's gone back ostensibly to interview Sean Quinn about his own new book in which he says what is his side of the story, but um, doesn't all go according to plan. Uh, we might get there uh, a little bit later. Uh, the main story on the front page of the Sunday Independent is that a new universal media levy that could be cheaper than the TV licence fee and collected by the revenue commissioners uh, is now being considered by the coalition as part of a major overhaul of the funding model of RTE. Senior government figures have discussed the prospect of replacing the licence fee with a universal charge on every household in the country, but this would be less than the €160 a year licence fee and it would be used to fund public service broadcasting. Uh, Using the revenue commissioners to collect the levy from the 2.1 million households in the state uh, is under consideration. That has been previously ruled out by the Department of Finance because um, the idea of revenue collecting something which isn't a tax uh, has been problematic before. But we are told today by Hugh O'Connell that senior political figures have now acknowledged that a new levy or charge that's applied to all households in the country and not just those who own a, a television set could indeed fall within the ambit of the Revenue Commissioners. Uh, That's the Sunday Independent. And finally for now, uh, the Mail on Sunday, which tells us Cabinet want cuts to RTE pay and staff. The Cabinet is demanding a series of hard-hitting reforms from RTE, including an incentivised redundancy scheme for high earners, widespread pay cuts and the sale of all or part of its Montrose campus. Uh, That story is written by the group political editor from the Mail newspapers, John Lee, who is with us in studio. John, what are they looking for? Good morning. Uh, well, they're looking for some reality from RTE, um, which they have thus far haven't seen. Um, one can either criticise or feel pity for Catherine Martin, but she has been the messenger to her cabinet colleagues of what um, RTE planned to do. Mm. So, what, what, as we all know, we've discussed this these issues on this programme quite often. The government want RTE to return and tell them how they're going to break up yeah. An institution that has lost an awful lot of credibility. And and a, quite a number of the most senior cabinet ministers said to me they were just not happy with what, they were, what was said to them last week. And they have said, we want to see. You know, politicians publicly never want to deal with, the, with, with unpalatable issues that um, to a lot of us are glaringly obvious. There will be redundancies as RTE. If anyone yeah. thinks that's not going to happen, they're fooling themselves. There will be pay cuts. And there, it was Backhurst, or Kevin Backhurst himself floated the idea of selling off um, Montrose. Mm. What cabinet ministers didn't hear last Wednesday was, well, where are the where are the detailed plans for selling off that site? It could be done very quickly. We have a lot of houses mm. we can. Fit well, it can be done very quickly, but of course they would need detailed plans for where for where they're going to go, which is not something that can be fleshed out uh, over a couple of weeks. The, I think, uh, you, I, as you know, in Virgin in Virgin Television, uh, to set up a broadcasting campus is not the most difficult thing on earth when there is land available in less expensive areas. So that can be done. And lastly, there was one we didn't get it on the front page, but it's inside. The, the government have gone a long way themselves in discussing what they haven't heard from RTE, which is a clear discussion of the split between public service broadcasting and commercially funded broadcasting. What they Even want, though they consider everything to be public service broadcasting. Because well, they were asked that at the Oireachtas. So like, do you consider all of your stuff to be public service? And they went, everything. Yeah, and yeah, Kevin Backhurst, all, they said to yeah. me, has come back and repeatedly said that, well, everything is. Now, what they want to see is something that one senior minister said to me like something along the lines of what CIE do 
which keep a separation from it. Uh, I'm not wholly familiar with how CIE do it, but what they want to see from RTE is uh, commercial funding, commercial broadcasting, and the government will agree to 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 fund a honed down mm. rump uh, public service broadcasting. They are very progressed at because RT are now demanding fifty million quid before the end of the year yeah. with no plan and no accession to the Taoiseach's yeah. repeated demands for conditions. Well, this this is the the point. And by the way, I should say that John Mulvihill, the digitalisation lead of Siemens, is also with us to go through the Sunday papers. And I, I will get your thoughts, John, on this in just a second. But just the last point you mentioned, um, John. So the government says, right, no no bailout unless some kind of reforms that we're not handing over a black cheque or not handing over uh, money if things are going to stay as they are. But we're already knees deep in so many different uh, reviews, including the two sanctioned by the government into um, culture and practices and, and governance. And they're not going to be back until the tail end of the year or early next year. And only after that can you really start going about heavy duty reforms. So what are they, what are RTE expected to offer in exchange for the, the 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 million that they might get out of the government in the budget next month? Well, what, 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 uh, again, ministers said to me was there, there has to be a distinction between, uh, which they feel that uh, a lot of us haven't gathered, myself included, I guess, in this conversation, a distinction between long-term sustainable funding of that organisation. Mm. That's, that's one track. And on the other track, uh, um, the bailout. And in the bailout, they want to see a, a air of reality coming from RTE management to say, to, explain to them what they intend to do. Thus far, they've had nothing. Mm. They've had, and that's, this. I'm, you know, Kevin Backhurst and his colleagues may come back and, re, and and rebuff that, but I can only tell you in the in the briefings that I received on Friday and Saturday that they feel they have not had anything, anything, mm. bar a, an, an agreement. They, and I think it was, it, it was um, one of the, one cabinet minister was quoted at, at, at cabinet last Wednesday. I think other papers referred to this as well. Excuse me, as well that RTE are presenting. This is what they said: RTE are presenting as reform uh, measures they should have been doing anyway. So some of the things they've said: well, we're going to use the barter account property, but sure, you should have been doing that in the first place. Mm. That's not reform. Uh, we're going to bring in a register of interest. So th- uh, they have yeah. said that th- they found one person said to me they found the proposals that were given to them uh, uh, insulting. Hmm. Um, I. Actually, you know, I'm going to hold that thought for a minute. Uh, Joan, um, your, your thoughts on, on what's going on here and, and the, the difficulties that, that if the government is going to have to write a cheque to keep RTE afloat in the budget next month, they're, they're going to need to look like they're getting some kind of pound of flesh in return. But it's very difficult to imagine at this point when we're still in the middle of all these long-term reviews where that flesh is going to come from. Yeah, I think what they... Uh, John is kind of mentioned it there as well it's there's no business strategy so we're going to sell Montrose that's a nice kite flying opportunity and yeah but mm. that's as you say a one term cash out but what are you going to spend it on suddenly you're going to sell Montrose and you've got all this cash in the bank but you're what still spending at the rate you're currently spending still you know yeah. still have running a barter account it doesn't make any mm. sense and does it make your operations any cheaper it doesn't, exactly yeah. so well your operating costs might be a little bit lower but if you own the property outright or depends on what you if you lease yeah. something out and mm. you know outside the M50 or whatever. But reality is, you know, um, they're talking, it, it's it's very loose talk at the moment. I wouldn't be giving, if you, if you go to a bank right now and you ask them for a loan for your business, they want to see a business plan. They want to know what your operating costs are going to be. Exactly, they want to exactly. know your plans for the future in a degree of detail. If you're, if you're going to the board of any organisation and you're putting forward a strategy and you're saying one of them is to, you know, liquidate a major asset, 
Great. Well, you want to do that? What do you want to spend it on? What is your future spending going to look like? These are normal business practice questions. Mm. The idea of deferring this, mind you, to wait until we figured out what our governance is. I'm sorry. Good governance is the basics. And you don't need, I don't need to know the details of you, what, adhering to decent governance to have a business plan. I want the business plan. And I think the issue is this, the pay cuts and redundancies. And one of the things that has certainly come to light in the last, uh, what, two months this has been going on, the mm. whole summer this has been going on, is there's an awful lot of people there who are not on huge salaries. Mm. And, you know, and there have been rounds of redundancies before, but were some of those positions even made actually redundant or was it just people opting, you know, yes. it, yeah. ca- yeah. cashing out? Yeah, phase them out for, for cheaper phase, alternatives. Phase, yeah. Exactly. So it has to be a real redundancy plan and they have to be pay cuts targeted at the right levels. And that is all strategic decisions that any business would have to Undergo. I think selling Montrose probably is the right thing to do, as you say, John, in the context of housing, the location. Mm. Is there any need? I, I've heard an argument that basically there there is much more space there in truth than they need in the modern day, yeah. that particularly with the then in Radio Centre, because so much of Radio 1 now comes from the TV building, that you've got a fairly big radio centre. And as I understand it, with one of your orchestras gone and a lot of the radio programmes moved out of the building, a, a lot of that is now surplus to requirements. So yeah. you could just do that across the board. There's big studios they don't need, and, build a smaller campus. And it would appear that there's an awful lot of issues with the actual campus that is there. It's old, it's dated, they've had infestation rodent problems and insect problems over the summer. Like it's not exactly a state-of-the-art um, facility anymore. It's probably run its course and, you know, there. if part of that business plan might indeed include mm. a, an overhaul of the premises. And, you know, we're all hanging on to it, but like, you know, Time time is up in many and many national institutions. That's just the way it goes. But would stress just to refer to redundancy program, yeah. Joan. Uh, government were very very clear. They've done a lot of thinking about this. They've done a lot of talking. They were very clear that they want to see any redundancy program protecting what you know inverted commas ordinary workers, lower paid workers. Yeah. Mm. We all know. Uh, and a lot of the public know from all the reading that they've done of this and viewing they've done of this over the summer. There are middle management there and higher paid management on questionable salaries yeah. and they want to which, see that Which target. is why I, I, the, the point that I stopped myself from making just before I went to Joan was that if, if the government is going to want them to do something and yet Leo Varanker wasn't he this week asked you know shouldn't the RT executives who took back their 10% pay cut last year and, and reinstated their their pay sh- should they maybe consider been asked to give that back and he was like Asher no can't, well, can't go I back and revisit that is that not at least the olive branch that senior management sh- should be making? I think senior management should definitely be making I was going to say gestures like that, but a show of confidence. But John, you actually called it at one point. You said the minister is getting caught as the messenger in all this. And that's a problem to me. You know, where is the, the who's in charge? <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Well, she was off, it appeared for a lot of the summer. Yeah. So um, my challenge here is like, if we want them to come back with something, okay, well, we better start telling them because clearly they're not they're not coming up with this themselves. Or mm. management, senior management are not clearly coming up with or being specific enough. So maybe it's time for the minister to get very specific about what she wants and expects and not expect. If Kevin Backhurst is not giving it to her, she better tell him exactly what she expects and wants for this and mm. be specific because that's the job. Well, that's, that's the, the tricky thing, isn't it? Because if you go in there and you, you sort of roll up your sleeve and demand that RTE does X, Y and Z, it's, it might be the right thing to do as the payment 
Ticketmaster, but then you'd kind of run into questions, wouldn't you, John, of like, are, are you telling RTE now what to do? That no, you're but sort of meddling I, in editorial but, interests. But, but my point, Gavin, is not to tell, she, it's her, not her job to, tell, to write the strategy for them, but it's yeah. her job to tell them, well, so, if you clearly don't know what a business strategy looks like for RTE, then let me suggest some headings to you. Yeah. You know, like she needs yeah, to get okay, more specific. Kind of set the priorities well, the maybe a little bit. Yeah. I used uh, uh, from a discussion with um, a government figure was, if you remember in The Godfather, Frank Pantangeli had... Uh, had betrayed the, the family and Tom Hagen was sent to him and said, listen, you know, this isn't working out, Frank. They don't, they didn't want any, you know, un, undue mm. uh, violence. So Frank was asked to do, do away with himself. So he, he, he went at his own hands and what, what the government wanted to see is RT come back with a plan on how they're going to rescue themselves. And I think if you work within the system as I have for a long time and you have Gavin in political system, there is always an air of, okay, listen, there'll be an eruption in the injustice. There'll be an eruption in, in, in the health service. If you're someone in RTE, that will overshadow all of this and we'll just all mm. cruise on as we did before. Everyone will forget about this. And that is not going to happen in this instance because very simply people have stopped paying their license fee. Mm. And that is, that is yeah. the glaring elephant or the big elephant in the room. Um, of course, it must, be, it must be pointed out. The government have no have have no bang a drum. They should be banging here too loudly. As Hugh O'Connell, of course, points out in the Sunday Independent, you know the the, the future media commission made it made made four, fifty recommendations last summer a year ago, mm. forty nine on on the on how to reform the media in Ireland. 49 of them yeah. were accepted and the one that wasn't accepted was... Is the one that's now on the front page of the Seattle yeah. that they're going to get the revenue. But yeah. put that in context, that levy, yeah. and we were just talking about it outside. When I was the CEO of the Irish Internet Association, I remember making a submission to the Department of Communications and it must be at least 10 years ago because I'm a long time mm. gone. It was at least 10 years ago about a broadcast fee, a broadcast charge, working it out on households based on mm. broadband saying this is how people are consuming their media. Yeah. It's not about having a television anymore and how do you fund yeah. it? Just by the by, if you were to only put it to households, then buildings like this that have televisions like that one over there would suddenly no longer have to pay the TV license. So I'm not sure if it actually makes you any more or, or money if you're excluding business premises, which currently do have to get one. Uh, what a press yeah. pause on that conversation for a minute, though, because we are joined on the line uh, by Peter Power, who's the uh, chief executive officer of UNICEF Ireland, because we want to talk about what's been going on in Morocco. Obviously, now the death toll as a result of uh, that enormous earthquake uh, overnight on, on Friday night, Saturday morning, has now reached uh, more than 2,000 people. And as I understand it, Peter, one of the biggest problems now is trying to get humanitarian access to the survivors that are in the affected areas. Yes, good morning, uh, Gavin. Yeah, the, extent, the, the damage has been very extensive uh, right across the, the province. We're hearing reports as far away as Marrakesh, Rabat, Casablanca, uh, receiving extensive damage. But the Real damages in the Al Hurus uh, province, right up in the high Atlas Mountains. And uh, by its very nature, this area is very remote, uh, many uh, dispersed villages, uh, very inaccessible in normal circumstances. And we understand a lot of the access roads uh, have been blocked. And therefore, a full assessment of the situation, uh, uh, the full picture has still yet to emerge, but it looks as if this is a severe earthquake. Mm. Uh, in, in those circumstances then, what can uh, you and your colleagues in UNICEF across the world, what exactly can you do uh, if if merely getting access to the site is so difficult? Well, in the, in the first instance, the Moroccan government is obviously a, a country with significant capacity. They're leading the humanitarian response. They've uh, teams in, some of uh, military, army personnel have 
gone uh, into the area to carry out immediate assessments, deliver deliver immediate aid. Uh, but the United Nations, UNICEF and other agents, we stand ready. Uh, we have capacity within the country. We have a long presence in Morocco and we do stand ready if the government requires further assistance. But the the type of assistance that would be required is immediately, obviously, people, many people have been very severely injured. Uh, that's the nature of earthquakes. So they need medical assistance. And then in the short term, in the next few days, you know, access to clean water will be critical. It's hot there. And in these circumstances, many of the water mains become damaged and access to clean water can be a very, uh, can be one of the immediate concerns. And that triggers, of course, issues of hygiene, sanitation and so forth. Then a lot of uh, people, obviously, their houses have been destroyed. And we, we understand whole villages have been wiped out. So uh, those people will need shelter. They need somewhere to sleep, blankets, tarpaulins, uh, and so forth. Uh, and then, of course, support for children, which is obviously a major concern for us. Mm. Many thousands of children will have experienced a very traumatic experience. So the full spread of uh, humanitarian assistance will be required. Uh, very briefly, Peter, because we're, we're short on time, and you mentioned that the army is, or that the civil authorities are taking the lead on humanitarian issues right now. One presumes that in time uh, it will fall to to NGOs to try and help to pick up the pieces. Uh, if people do want to make a contribution to that, where can they go? Well, we will we'll have to see about that. Uh, we we obviously are guided by, and we work very closely in any of these contexts. Most recently, of course, in Turkey and Syria, we're guided by uh, the governments and uh, about what their response is. Uh, and we haven't received any uh, direct call for international humanitarian assistance from the Moroccan uh, government, but we do have capacity in country. Uh, as I said, we've been there for a long period of time, so uh, we have not issued an appeal uh, at this stage and to see how the needs assessment develops over the next 48 hours. But the next 48 hours will be critical in terms of, A, getting access to the areas and to getting a fuller picture of the full extent of what has happened here. Okay, Peter Power, Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland, thank you very much for joining You're us welcome. this morning uh, on, on the record. Uh, a lot of reaction coming into the previous discussion about RTE. We'll get to that and the rest of what's in the papers when we're back after this. Still joined in studio by Joan Mulvihill and John Lee, and also uh, from the line from Bordeaux uh, by Ashing O'Reilly of Team Off the Ball. Um, Ashing, you were in the stadium yesterday to see Ireland run 12 tries past Romania. Um, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. You could go, yeah, this is exactly this sort of big win that we should be getting on an opening match against a relative minnow and then you could also maybe look at it and still get a bit finicky and think that there's bits that need improving uh, what's the mood of the squad afterwards? Yeah Gavin a really successful first World Cup game for Ireland you know putting up 82 points is definitely something the Ireland players were very happy with after the game you know there was extremely tough conditions out there there was highs of 35 degrees so that was maybe a bit evident to begin with when Ireland conceded a try after three minutes, but there was no real panic. And at that point, I felt it was Johnny Sexton who really steadied the ship, got the pass off to James Gibson Park and got Ireland up and running for the first try. And they, they really kicked on from there. It yeah, is very, really reassuring, isn't it, to see that Johnny Sexton, having, having not basically played a rugby or kicked a ball in anger for about six months, was able to come back and still not look like he had any ring rust on him at all. Oh, it was incredible, like 38 years of age at his fourth World Cup. And to see him out there, two tries, seven conversions, he really led that Irish team. And when he came off after 65 minutes for Jack Crowley, it was a standing ovation in the crowd. It, 
it was great to be there and, and experience it. But Andy Farrell was just delighted that he has his captain back. He said the most important thing for them as a group that he's got 60-odd minutes, he's played pretty well, and he's healthy, and he's ready to go again next week. Um, was there any uh, negative criticism or feedback or any sorts of uh, introspection for the players afterwards, or were they just considering this as job well done, let's move on? Yeah, I think so, but they they made no um, mistake that it wasn't a flawless performance. Yes, they put up 82 points, but you know some of the handling, the line-outs went wrong at times. So there's definitely things to work on, but they were delighted that they, they've got to get their first performance under their belt, and it's on to a much bigger test next week with Tonga. You know, there's different eligibility rules now in World Rugby. So there's seven former All Blacks going to be playing for Tonga. So it's going to be a big physical game. Um, finally then, on a totally separate note, were you uh, able to catch up or able to sort of figure out what were the issues outside the stadium? Because it seems like Bordeaux wasn't the only place yesterday where there was a massive backlog of supporters trying to get into the, the grounds. And this early on in a tournament, it's not a great sign if you continually have massive amounts of people outside the game um, by kickoff time still trying to file their way in. Yeah, we're not sure yet exactly what went on. I think it was really down to the organisation. Um, I had a lookout just before the game kicked off and there was massive crowds at the Stade de Bordeaux. It was 35 degrees and there was empty seats in the stadium as the game started, so definitely not ideal. It was the same in Paris as well the night before for the All Blacks and France, so it definitely has to be looked at. And even just the trams on the way in, they were absolutely jammed. A lot of the, the media buses weren't going. So it's not fully been plain sailing. Uh, they definitely need to make tweaks. So hopefully that's something that they can get um, sorted now for the next few games. Fingers crossed. Uh, Ashton O'Reilly from Bordeaux joining us there this lunchtime and on the record. Thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on the thoughts of the Irish rugby camp. I seem to remember there were similar issues. I was in the same stadium when Ireland were beaten by Belgium in Euro 2016. And I seem to remember there being issues then as well where because it's so far out of town that the tram is the only way to get there. And basically if the tram is overloaded from people who aren't locals or natives or don't have any other way to get there, basically the tram system is incapable of bringing the entire stadium in and out of the city centre. And let's hope that that isn't uh, something that's recurring. As I mentioned, John Lee and Joe Mulvihill still with me in studio to go through some of the stories making the papers. Um, I, I did single out um, actually the... Um, some of the budgetary stuff but actually just before I, I go to the budgetary stuff John because I, I want to make sure that we do get a chance to discuss this uh, you have a piece on page 29 of the Mail on Sunday today people might remember the controversy that erupted about six years ago um, about the financing of the Garda Training College in Templemore and some of the ways in which uh, enormous amounts of money which ostensibly should have been going to training the law enforcement of the future weren't really going to the, the best possible purposes You've got a piece today about the six years of investigation that's followed. Um, in those six years, uh, how often has the chief whistleblower uh, been spoken to? An hour, it seems. And, For one um, hour? He, yeah, and he is um, John Barrett, a man uh, that, that won a lot of admiration from his appearances at the Public Accounts Committee. He was probably one of the few places I think the public would have seen him. Yeah. Um, the issues were emerging uh from early in 2017, we, we had broken a story based upon a, an internal Garda audit, uh, which had revealed uh, extraordinary carry-on at Templemore. Uh, mm. John Barrett, some, some of the money that was being transferred from ostensibly from Garda training to the the Garda Boat Club. Where do we start? Like there was they'd 50, they'd 50, the fifty the the audit revealed they had fifty bank accounts. This Templemore itself. Yeah. Um, there were what might seem like small issues, but there was there was accusations that laws had been broken because um, 
bank accounts had been had been opened without the assent of the minister, uh, minister for justice. That um, unsexy stuff, I guess. Like um, what, what was the other one? But there were serious things that the golf that, course. Well, there was guardies sitting on sitting on boards and these kind of things, serving members, which was a big problem. But the there was a hundred thousand euros transferred from the Garda Training College to the Garda Boat Club. Boat Club. We still don't know why or how that happened. That's a transaction when you think about it that is very, very unusual. GSOC have then subsequent to John Barrett's um, disclosures at the, PC, at the PAC have gone on to investigate this. It's taken six years. Now any any kind of uh, malfeasance that takes six years to uh, be investigated, you can be sure that anyone that was mm. allegedly involved in such malfeasance is well prepared for any any uh, kickback. Now, I, I, from who I spoke to last week, cannot see anyone being prosecuted for this. Um, elsewhere, Ali Bracken has a story in the Sunday Indep- Independent where she reports that it is felt there may, yes, be ramifications. So mm. let's see. Right now, John Barrett, the man who came to the PAC and disclosed an awful lot of his... Uh, observations on what went on within the Gardaí remains on suspension mm. from on Garda Siakana. He is the HR director, a man of um, uh, uh, with an impeccable um, CV. So it seems the only person that suffered at all of this is the man who made it public. Yeah, uh, it is worth noting actually just it's it's crystallising that piece by Ali Bracken, which is page 10 of the Sunday Independent. Um, that there is still uh, amid all of this you know, questionable transactions and uh, why money was transferred you know, to, for example, a, a golf course or a, a boat club. Um, but there's also two million uh, euro funds which are just unaccounted for, uh, that nobody has any idea where they've gone to, which you'd think at the very least would have been uh, the centre of, of all that controversy. Um, I mentioned um, the budgetary stuff because I sort of feel like it's time that we sort of bit the bullet and recognise that it is happening in the next month, whether we like it or not. So uh, time to look out for the kite. Uh, but it doesn't seem like much of a kite, Joan, if the Business Post is telling us that Michal Martin says, yeah, we're going to cut the USC and six other cabinet ministers have said, yeah, we're in favour of that. that. That's a pretty good sign that's going to happen, isn't it? It is. I, I, it's it's amusing. I mean, it's it's great. Obviously, we've been talking about the USC, the temporary tax that became the mm. permanent tax for as long as it's been a temporary permanent tax. Yeah. And it might finally yeah. yeah, and it might finally now be reduced, not mm. obliterated, mm. reduced. I do think it's it's kind of I had written here as like this final redemption um of the pinball <laughs> crash. It's like, okay, we brought it in, the crash was on us, it's the final step we need for our full rehabilitation and to be forgiven for the sins of the past. We will reduce the USC on our watch. Um I, it's long overdue, obviously. Um but I always I always take these things with a large pinch of salt. Like the government still needs money. They need money to run the health service. They need money to build the houses. They need money, God forbid, mm. but to run RTE or whatever <laughs> it might be. So if you're if you're reducing your tax somewhere, yeah. you'll be paying for it somewhere else. Which and is- so and 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 yet there does seem to be a number of nice pleasant, pretty kites going around there around school books, going in secondary school and some, you know, they, they and and they were looking at things like rather than um, Christmas bonuses, but actually making real increases. People need certainty in uncertain times. And there is something incredibly uncertain about a Christmas bonus payment on social welfare versus the empowering of people by giving them, you know, a real benefit weekly throughout a mm. year that feels more permanent. So treating people properly, I think, is is part of all yeah. of this. And and so 
but I take all of this as, as a pinch of salt forever until budget day yes, and we see what it really, really looks like. Uh, doesn't this, if this is true, John, wouldn't that confirm that A, uh, Leo Varadkar's ambition of the 30% uh, PAYE rate isn't going to happen this year because you'd presumably put more stock in that than, than cutting USC were it to happen? And B, that the intervention of the three Fine Gael junior ministers, uh, including Jennifer Carl McNeil, by the way, who's done an interview with Hugh O'Connell and the Sindo, um, that their plan to give the average worker about a grand more in their pockets may not now come to fruition. Um, I guess Leo's Leo's answer to that will will be, well, you know, I, I floated a tax cut and here it comes. It mightn't have the same name I gave it and it mightn't look as the package I gave, it, but certainly I've I've used my influence. Mm. And uh, Joan referred to it there. I think the history of the USC is very interesting. It was re- it was introduced in December 2010, mm-hmm. and think of the memories that that um, that rallies for us <laughs> yeah. for us all. I, I was trying to save for a car at the time, and I remember how much money I used to have at the end of the month uh, until the USC came in, and then I remember how much I had oh, after the USC, which was oh nothing. Man. Yeah, oh man, and Finnafall TDs, God rest his soul, still would be unhappy with um, Brian Lennon for how he did it, but Brian Lennon had to do it. Um. I rarely would report on a budget which we, you would receive um, positively. I've, I, in recent years, I would have kind of tried to dismiss the whole operation that it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a, 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 a PR stunt in many ways, considering the amount of money we deal with and the small amount of money that's de- dealt with in the budget. In the budget, mm. but last year I must say politically was it was a bit of a masterclass, and if they if they can pull that off. And then pull it off again next year. All hopes of a of an early general election might actually come to pass. But th- th- so a pe- you think that if they do as as many one off cost of living measures, that if they start to really bear fruit in spring, that the government just goes, yeah, here, look at people seem happy. Let's go. That's with what it. people say. I never quite believe that a politician won't spend six months more in a, in, in, a, in a cushy job like the Department of Taoiseach <laughs> or Department of Finance, <laughs> yeah. and then they have to. Or but if is, they can. Isn't the argument but, that you could you could stop Sinn Fein from getting to give a dress rehearsal to their next election candidates if you go have a general? election before the next local. Oh God, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 sorry, I, I, I thought the following year, but who, who knows? Maybe they will. You know, they, yeah. may, may, maybe that's there for them. But um, if you look in there as well, the, the Sunday Business Post refers to, and they seem to give a credence now more than just been a, a, something that was floated. Uh, that um, Norma Foley will extend the free school books to from primary schools to secondary schools. Yeah. I think that's a. We're always hearing about the Donnacombe move. I think that has been one of the most uh, astute, um, um, impactful moves this government has made. Uh, I don't go back to school on the on the on the on the parents' WhatsApps. Yeah. We, we we have two children in primary school. Parents have been discussing, you know, where we go for the books and everything, mm. and it's only dawning on them now. They don't yeah, have to don't pay have for to school books it. anymore. Yeah. Which is a which is an incredible um, achievement and vote getter. Mm. If they do that with secondary schools, it, yeah, it, 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 that, it, well, that's I, the I, one to watch. There's some some in education. I'm, I'm married to to someone who's in education. A lot of them have noted that the money that appears to have gone to paying for the free primary school books uh, has been taken from the ICT grant. So it was basically that they've reassigned money and they're presenting it as a cost of living measure. And fair pay to them, good luck to them. But they, people don't realise that they are actually cutting from grants in other areas and people were wondering how are we supposed to reward exactly these uh, primary schools that are outlawing smartphones if in fact there is no ICT grant to uh, to allow them to invest in alternative technologies Well I think for me it's it, that's an additional thing that goes to parents of children 
and uh, they're still getting their children's allowance. And it look, I, I've always been amused by the children's allowance and the fact that it's not means tested in any way. Mm. Um, I also Which explicitly ruled out this week, haven't they? Yeah. yeah. And so um, and so here we are. And it's like, going, so you get to keep your children's allowance and we'll give you the books as well. As someone who doesn't have any children, <laughs> it doesn't impact me as directly. But it does kind of, it does, it always stings for me that the, the children's allowance is not means tested. Um, because there are people without means in other parts of society who could well, who are, there's a lot in the yeah. papers about people with, children with special needs that services are not there for mm. them. And it is killing me that there are people, that, that everybody gets the children's allowance, but there are parents of children there in desperate situations, yeah. in dire needs, who don't have what they require, who don't have what they need. So that has always been a bugbear of mine. I know it's not specifically joined the dots and the two things in the stories together, mm. but it, it is painful to, to read some of those Is things. there not an argument that the, the reason why children's allowance is universal is because it shouldn't matter about the means of the parent that the state wants to make a benefit for the or payment for the benefit of every child and the state views every child equally irrespective of its they, parents' they means. They do but, but children are not getting the money their parents are getting the money their parents are spending the money on their children and their, their parents are providing for the children that is just a, a fact of life and Dressing it up as all children should be treated equally. Yes, they absolutely, the, the state values them all equally, but it is a fundamental to understand that equal is not fair. Mm. Equal does not mean fair. It just means equal. Um, well, you have about 90 seconds before I'm supposed to get to the next ad break. And I very quickly just want to, to put to you the piece on page four of the Sunday Times, which covers the the movement of Ukrainian refugees into uh, some of the tents which were originally mounted for um, electric picnic last year or this year obviously which was only uh, last weekend and how some of the the, the if you like the glamping uh, accommodation that have been set up is now going to be repurposed to house those coming from Ukraine and I can't decide Joan whether this is a really sensible thing because the tents are there and it's already a service site and it's got its electricity and everything or is it actually normalising something which we should never be doing which is expecting people to live in tents indefinitely I think that is an excellent uh, I suppose perception of, of what's happening here. Yeah. I'm torn in the same way. Obviously, it is incredibly practical and it feels like a really nice thing right now because mm. it's gloriously sunny outside and they are, you know, glamping pods, you know, so they are very nice facilities. But you're right. We still don't, it's a temporary measure and we still don't have a, I'm not going to say step down, I mean step up from that, which is mm. we don't have permanent housing for everybody. And yes, they are very well kitted out and it does seem like an incredibly practical thing to do. They are far better than what you could, your mind would imagine when you think of people in yeah. tents. But as you say, normalising it, it, it can't, it's not a sustainable long-term solution. Mm. John? Well, I, th I, I think the alternative was and there were, there were reports of, of, of refugees having to sleep rough for a period of time. So, I mean, that's... If that's what there is, Leo Varadkar was asked this question during the week and in his endearingly frank way, he was, at, he was asked, why are people going into tents? And he said, because they keep coming. So this is the best the government can, can do for the moment. And I think it's just to our credit that we are taking the number of Ukrainian refugees we are <laughs> and to our discredit that mm. we probably can't provide them with the accommodation they deserve. Yeah, I do wonder uh, if they're still going to be there in 51 weeks time and if we're going to have a little miniature version of what's happening at college campuses where they've been living somewhere for as long as the accommodation wasn't being used but then if you have people with glamping tickets for next year. Yeah, then and then, and then we have again. the college campus issue. I was talking to somebody from one of the uh, new universities um, just the other day and he said the first month back to term 
there are students sleeping in their cars because they don't have accommodation. So, you know, it's mm. all part of a bigger picture, but you're right. I mean, we do have to support the refugees that are here, but we do have to address a bigger macro homelessness challenge. Uh, someone on Children's Allowance says, a card that can only be used for food and clothing uh, should be introduced. Um, this is something that comes up quite a bit. I'm sure there are other needs that arise from time to time. You know, go and pay for medical treatment or if you can't get a free GP visit, that it has to be paid for other things. But it's something that does get raised. Uh, someone else just for now uh, on uh, North Inner City, and we're going to be talking about this after 12. Uh, the Inner City has been neglected by the two conservative right-wing parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, for decades and decades. Shame on them. And lots of texts about RTE, which we'll get to after this. Uh, but we're also playing the Rolling Stones because the news this week that they're about to bring out another studio album, uh, which is their first in 16 years. And this was particular news to John Lee, who would have assumed that Spotify would have sent him a push alert by now about this. Yeah, the push me my favourite um, yeah. Uh, musicians. The algorithm would recognise you as a, a Rolling Stones fan. Yeah, it seems to. I, I I'm, sent me the recent Blur album, which is the best thing they've ever done, in my opinion. So I, I would, I'd be waiting. I'm a bit like, but going seeing them live, I've always been a, I, I, I've always been a bit sceptical of that. Like, do I really want to see these guys as I don't picture them anymore? That's, you know. So in your mind's eye, are they, it's still the 60s. Well, Jim Morrison, for a reason, is still an icon because he's preserved as tw- at twenty-seven forever. John Lennon preserved yeah. at forty forever. Not not great for them, but well, I reckon great if, for if us. JFK hadn't been shot, there would have been some other scandal that would have taken him down. He never would have been remembered <laughs> so fondly. He's 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 an Irishman, but <laughs> I, I've never I've never. I've never I've never seen them live mm. but I love the Rolling Stones uh, I actually I went to see them in Croke Park when they were there a few, a few years thank you uh, uh, on their behalf I went to see them in, in Croke Park a few years ago and actually the one thing that I was amazed by Charlie Watts and this will be their first studio album without Charlie Watts on drums like he was just like it, to be that's like drumming for that long and the Stones do long sets like yeah. that's a physical workout he was wearing a lovely pressed dress suit just very nobly just kind of sitting away just banging away for two and a half hours, not a drop of sweat in them. Well, that's where Larry, Larry Mullen is obviously having his surgery now after years of drumming. It does mm. take its toll. But I just, my sense with Mick Jagger is that he's not going to go live on a stage unless he feels he can go out there as himself, you yeah. know, in the full of himself. And I, I think, you know what, John, is we, if we sit far enough back or stand far enough back, we won't notice from a distance that they probably look a little bit older than they are in our minds. How's the sound, Gavin? Um, at the gigs so well it's, it, it, the sound it's sound coming sound? from the band the sound coming from them is fine I know Croke Park isn't everyone's favourite uh, venue because with the new concrete bowl that the acoustics aren't as, as great as they yeah. were before its redevelopment but they still sounded very fresh and Jagger still seemed to have a fair amount of um, energy in his lungs so um, fair, they're, they're, they're all an advertisement for living very cleanly yeah. as all of them famously um, did yeah, I, I mean, Keith the fact that Keith Richards is, is still going is, is just remarkable. Um, speaking of uh, people not breaking a sweat, um, Charlie Watts might not have been breaking a sweat then, but there's plenty of people knocking around this week breaking a sweat because of how hot it's been. Um, is there a, is there a, a, an end to this coming? Do the papers have some, some mixed speculation as to when this heat wave is going to end? Well, I think we're getting some thunder and lightning later on and to get cooler by Wednesday. It's been a it's been a lovely run for that whole week that we had in September after <laughs> horrific July and August. But it's amazing, you know, when the sun comes back like that, you wake up every morning and you take it for granted again, like going, wow. And then you almost forget this is so abnormal. You nearly want it every day, but it will break. Mm. And that's sad, but uh, it is God, September. I spent the week in the Middle East with Micheál Martin and genuinely I thought it was hotter in my back garden on Friday evening hanging out the washing than I did over there. Now maybe it's because when you're over there, you're in and out of buildings and they've got the air con so you get a bit of respite. But uh, I, I honestly thought that the heat was more stifling 
in, I was, in I, Dublin 16. I was there. running yesterday morning with the Harriers in Mullingar and mm. uh, one of the guys had been over in Copenhagen during the week um, and he said it was really unusual to come back in the summertime from anywhere and get off the plane in Ireland and for to be warmer here. Yeah. That only ever happens when you come back yeah, from a skiing holiday. Yeah, you go somewhere and then you go and you, you feel the heat hit you just when you step off the plane and you're like, ah, oh, great, now we're on holidays now. Yeah. You're not supposed to get to it get when that. you're landing oh, in Dublin. Oh, yeah, we're home in Ireland. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, few texts and tweets about RTE. I hope nobody seriously thinks that leaving the Montrose site will suddenly be filled with lots of social and affordable houses. It's Dublin 4. It's going to be priced beyond anyone's reach, uh, says one person, which is pr- probably a fair point. Uh, somebody else says RTE should be moved to the now disused GPO and sell Montrose. Regular listener. They started out there, didn't they? Yeah. It'd be, I, be a nice little uh, sort of bookends for that, wouldn't there? Um, somebody else says the RTE puzzle will not be unravelled until its leaders' actions have unravelled. Somebody else says, uh, uh, hang on, this this thing about a universal br- uh, broadcasting charge, that's a household tax specifically for RTE, isn't it? Somebody no one wants. That's going to be the problem, isn't it? That yeah. if they were to ever go down that route, it would look like it's a, a new ring-fenced it's like the household charge that had Phil Hogan almost hounded out of office. It's that, but for well, RTE. I did at the outset yeah. of the controversy of quotes from ministers fearing that this is water charges charges too. I, I, I think there just has to be an understanding of how much the media landscape has changed in the last 10 years. And that doesn't seem to have hit RTE yet. But, you know, the government cannot get away with this scot-free. They've had internal debates ad nauseum about how they're going to fund RT and they haven't come up with a solution okay. and it is their their <laughs> duty too. We are completely out of time. John Lee, Executive Editor for the Daily Mail Group and John Mulvihill, Digitalisation Lead at Siemens. Thank you both very much for joining us in the studio. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Redesign your organisation. Reinvent your capabilities. Reimagine your future. On News Talk.